Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Paul here, and it's October. So before we kick off the October Rage and Series 4, I'd like to give a great shout out to our newest member of the Angry Mob, Ben Shaw. Thank you very much, because your donations, Ben, are helping us to expand the show out into live shows and improve our microphones and sound. So thank you very much, and everybody, enjoy October. Hello, and welcome to History Rage, a podcast where members of the historical community take on the established narrative without getting burned for heresy. The podcast where we turn base metal into hard fact. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and fellow historian, Kyle Glover. Hello. So, Series 4. If anyone ever suggests that history doesn't repeat itself, here we are. Yes, so four seasons means we've got one more than the in-betweeners. Now, I don't have a tally, so I don't know if that's any good or not, but apparently it is. So, uh, there we go. It is. I ought to lend you the DVDs. Oh, God. Well, this week, dear listener, two great loves of mine, which are history and science. And taking us on this journey of scientific discovery through to our Eureka moment is award-winning journalist and science historian, lecturer at Falmouth University, and author of Super Heavy, Making and Breaking the Periodic Table, and Racing Green, How Motorsport Science Can Save the World, Dr. Kit Chapman. Kit, welcome to History Rage. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to tearing into this. <laughs> yeah, I've been picking up that vibe from the Twitter messages that we've been sending to each other beforehand. Um, but you came on to us on recommendation, first of all, from Alex Churchill and Andy Locke when we recorded them for the start of Series 3. And here you are starting off Series 4. But before we dive in, tell us and our other listener a little bit about yourself and your career, if you would. Sure. Uh, so I initially started as a science journalist and then about five, six years ago, I was very lucky. I, I managed to find myself caught up in history um, and people discovering chemical elements. And I actually went over to Russia um, when we were friends with Russia. And I interviewed the people during the Cold War who'd actually sort of battled against the Americans to try and make elements heavier than exist on Earth. 
And I started inter interviewing them. I sort of fell in love with science history um, and eventually got my PhD in exactly that subject and uh, and have started sort of built, looking at history and, and, and the whole, whole of science. And it's just fabulous. I get to combine all of my loves at once. So you started, you started in journalism. I mean, have you always had a science background? Yeah, my uh, my original degree is actually in pharmacy. I, I trained to be a um, a pharmacist. I I ended up actually sort of after studying, deciding that I didn't want to do it. I preferred writing. I, I found that much more fun than than sitting in boots and handing out pills and whatnot. Um, so <laughs> I I sort of made the leap, and then I've always had this love of history ever since I was a kid. I mean, I remember. Uh, writing about sort of history and, and, and sort of really getting into it. I did little projects apparently over the summer where I'd sort of make little Roman towns and things like that. Didn't have to do it for school, just wanted to. Um, so I've always kind of been absolutely in love with history and to get to bring everything together is wonderful. Yeah. And it's like science history is, it's got to be a fascinating subject. You know, it is the history of discovery. It is. Science history is one of those things that it's often kind of almost seen as like a side avenue in history. You've got this, the history and philosophy of science is seen as almost this separate subject. And I really don't think it is because science is very much the story of how of interconnectedness, how everything brings it together. And as I mentioned, um, this story about the, the scientists in the Cold War, that connects directly to politics. It changed uh, political opinions. We actually mm. had sort of people going over and meeting Nikita Khrushchev and things like that. So you can't take one aspect of human history and remove it from another. And I think science is just as important as social history, as military history. It combines into all of those areas. Yeah, you, you can't have an industrial revolution without somebody making a scientific discovery. No, you, you can't have an industrial revolution. You can't have a war without guns. I mean, uh, one of the sort of famous quotes from, from a Nobel Prize winner I know, I'm just casually name dropping there, was something along the lines of if we were still um, just doing fundamental science, we'd just we'd just have really good spears, you know. We wouldn't <laughs> be moving away and building you know, bows and arrows, and then obviously human evolution and, 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 and the evolution of knowledge and things like that. So when I look at science history, I don't look at sort of one area. I'm looking at um, a millennia stretching, and it does mean that I need to have a broad knowledge of all kinds of areas. But it's all fascinating for me. I get to look at absolute crackpots. Um, and somehow they're making <laughs> breakthroughs and benefiting us all. Yeah, that fine line between genius and insanity. I mean, sometimes the line isn't even there, to be brutally honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like something that you've loved all your life. But what we're going to get to now is what you've hated all your life uh, and still hate today. And this is what History Rage is all about. So with all the emotion, and I can see you're revving to go. <laughs> With all the emotion that you think it warrants, please, Kit, tell our listeners what you wish people would just stop believing. I am bloody sick of people believing that people in the Middle Ages thought the Earth was flat. They didn't. Nobody in Western Europe thought the Earth was flat. Excellent. A very concise point then. So I will... Let's get on to this then. So before we dig into this myth then, let's let's talk about let's talk about the people. Who are our historic flat earthers? How does this myth develop? Well, this is this is one of those things. So it's the Americans. 
blame the Americans from where we're getting this from. Um, there are some apologies to our American listeners. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not going to hold you guilty. I am starting on Washington Irving. So people probably know him as the legend of Sleepy Hollow. He was a very popular writer and he was the big champion of Christopher Columbus. And of course, he wants to make his hero, Christopher Columbus, sound like this misunderstood genius. And so he had this idea. Everyone thought the Earth was flat. But oh, no, Christopher Columbus set off to prove that he could you know, go around the Earth to the Indies. And lo and behold, he discovered America. And it was sort of caught on by people who had this lazy trope of, ha ha, the church must be bad. All these priests and things like that, they're thinking the Earth is flat. Look how stupid they are in the Middle Ages. Look how great we are. It wasn't the case. People thought Columbus was an idiot because they were worried he was going to run out of food going over to the Indies. Um, It wasn't the fact that they thought the Earth was flat. They thought it was bigger than he thought it was. And they were right. If he hadn't hit America, all of his crew would have died. He was (laughs) running out of food. So it's it's that you also get these these crackpot theories throughout the 19th century. Uh, A great example is a guy called John Cleve Sines, who thought that the Earth was hollow. And wanted to launch an, exp- an expedition to Antarctica or, uh, or to the Arctic, where he thought there was an entrance into the Earth because the Earth was like a giant donut, and you could go inside, and there was a second Earth inside. So in the 19th century, all of these theories were floating around, but the one that sort of persists with flat Earth is a guy called Samuel Robotham, and he wrote a book about zetetic astronomy. That sounds like a right page turner. Oh, it's it. Yeah, I, I've never read it. I'm not even going to pretend I have. But it's that kind of sort of nonsense uh, that eventually sort of lingers. And, of course, people thought flat earthers were crackpots for centuries, since the 19th century. But what you see is in the Internet, it falls into that conspiracy theory camp. And other people are sort of latching onto it from other conspiracy theories. They're coming to flat earth. They are finding a community and they are building that community upon it. You know, there is no scientific basis for it. They've got their own sort of little theories and models and things like that. But it's essentially being created by a very small community who really are just talking bollocks. (laughs) Is there an element here? Because we we particularly seem to target the Middle Ages for for this idea that people all thought that the Earth was flat at that point. I always like to blame the Victorians for pretty much everything. Because my theory, and it is just a theory, or to use scientific terms, a hypothesis, is that... When you've got a world that is as grubby and unappealing as Victorian Britain, you do need to make all the previous years of history look dumb, stupid crap. The sort of you'd never had it so good kind of idea. Yeah, exactly. You might have rickets and cholera and, you know, tuberculosis, but, you you know, you could be the sort of moron that lives in 1450. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about the Victorian era is that we're coming off the uh, the Enlightenment is just has obviously happened previously, and we've seen this massive surge, particularly in fields like biology and chemistry. We get obviously the uh, on the origins of species, you know, um, theory of evolution that happens during the Victorian era. We move away from the miasma theory of of bad smells, um, and we actually discover germ theory and how things how people are getting ill and why which obviously does link to this whole whole idea of you know stinky London. People often don't realise that the London sewerage system was built by Joseph Barazeljet to get rid of the smells of of the poo. It wasn't to get rid of the you know the the poo because it was causing cholera, um, which of course it was. So it, it was almost inadvertently that they managed to solve this disease problem that they had with the London sewerage system. 
and we we we're in an age of great enlightenment in in the Victorian era. There is no question about that. You know, we've got chemistry, we've got biology, we've got physics for the first time. We've actually got proper science, and so I can kind of understand why they want to sort of big themselves up a little bit. But blaming everything on the Middle Ages, I mean, it's just it's just harsh. It's just not the case. You know, the idea that people sort of sit on their ass and go, oh, that's my lot, I'm a peasant, or something like that. It, it's just not the reality. Okay, so as this predates actually being able to go into orbit and see the Earth as a whole, um, can you talk us through the science behind working out how the Earth is round at the time? And what time period we're talking here? Absolutely. So uh, go on then, uh, I'll throw it back to you, Carl. Have a guess, how long ago do you think we first measured the circumference of the Earth properly? Um, oh, he's the sort of person who'll know. I, cu- I couldn't say exactly when, but one of the ancient Greeks. You are right. I knew he'd go Greek. I of just course. knew he'd go Greek. So 400 BC and the Greeks, they started thinking about the Earth as round. But the first, although the Earth is actually spherical because it bulges in the middle, um, as everyone knows, around the equator, um, it's actually Ptolemaic Egypt. So it is kind of Greek. Um, it's yeah. Aratosthenes of Syene. Uh, is the chap, um, and he was born in modern-day Libya uh, about 2,300 years ago. And for those who don't know, Ptolemaic Egypt exists after the fall of Alexander, Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great dies very, very young. His empire, which spans the known world at the time, breaks apart by each of his generals taking a piece. And Ptolemy, um, being a big weirdo, moves to Egypt, sets up his family as a dynasty uh, where they're worshipped as gods. They all inbreed for about 200 years. And at the end, we get Cleopatra. And one of the things they do create is the Library of Alexandria, the Great Library. And Eratosthenes is the chief librarian of the Great Library. So he's a really important figure. He actually is the first guy to establish chronology. So he tries to put you know, the Trojan War, how many years ago was that? He actually thinks up the concept of you know, putting things in, in an order. And one day he wanted to measure the circumference of the Earth. So he got two sticks uh, and he put them in the ground. Doesn't sound very scientific, but we'll get to that. One was in Alexandria, which is in the north of Egypt, it's on the coast. And one was in Aswan. And on a particular day, at midday, he got himself and a mate to measure the length of shadow on those sticks. And the shadows Mm -hmm. were different lengths. Now, if the Earth was flat and the sun was down on both of them, that doesn't make any sense at all. The the lengths would be the same, but they were different. So then he got a guy called a Bematist. And a Bematist was a professional walker. Uh, and they would measure distances with their pacing. They would they were trained to count the number of steps they took. That's, in fact, how we know exactly how far Alexander the Great got, because he had a guy walking along with his army and counting his steps. And so he got the Bermatists, and they used this for tax purposes so they could actually work out you know, how big land was to measure the distance between Alexandria and Aswan. And taking that distance, he could work out the uh, the degree of, of the curvature based on the shadows that he had with his sticks. And he got the exact distance around the Earth, pole to pole, as 40,000 kilometers, give or take. The correct answer is 40,008 kilometers. Close enough. And that was 2,300 years ago. Yeah, that's within rounding errors there, isn't it? I mean... So... We've known that the Earth is spherical, or, or at least you know a round globe, uh, in the West for you know over two thousand years. 
Um, and the idea that this is doubted in the Middle Ages just doesn't happen. I mean, Thomas Aquinas writes about the earth being round. No one corrects him. You know, his readers are expected to understand that this is scientific fact. So absolutely no one in the Middle Ages in Western Europe is thinking that the earth is 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 flat. I mean, the only person that's doing it is like Hieronymus Bosch in his Guardian of Earthly Delights and it's this disc and things are falling off. But he's an artist and if anyone looked Hieronymus's Bosch's paintings, they're a bit weird, to put it mildly. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's putting it very diplomatically indeed. I would have to say as well, you know, you talk about Columbus earlier on. When Columbus announces that he's going to go off on his voyage, he's going to go around the world. You know, nobody in, you know, no, nobody in those courts at the time is going, you're insane. You'll fall off the edge. Yeah, that doesn't happen. We, we'd know if that was happening. Yeah, we, we would have records of, you know, people going, oh, no, you're going to fall off the edge of the earth and things like that. Of course, that doesn't happen. If you think about the painting, um, again, we're going back to art, but um, Holbein's painting of the ambassadors, um, which is only, you know, we're talking about 60 years after after Columbus's voyage. It's it's got it's got a globe in it. You know, they have a spherical earth in that painting. So we knew that the uh, the earth was 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 round. And as I say, the main thing that people were saying, Columbus, don't be a dick. What are you doing? The reason was that everyone knew that he had miscalculated, that he was thinking that the earth was much smaller than it was. And when you look at, um, I mean, people might be familiar with the Mercator projection, which is this idea of basically using latitude and longitude, and it distorts the shape of the earth, but it creates nice straight lines for you to sail across the sea. Um, the Mercator projection, uh, I mean, that was uh, the 16th century, the early 16th century. So we're talking less than 50 years after Columbus makes his voyage. Uh, we are designing these these navigation charts. Uh, and that is assuming that the Earth is curved. So yeah. I, I absolutely, it drives me up the, up the wall that anyone would think seriously that people thought that you know, the Earth wasn't um, at least you know, round or spherical. Um, in Columbus's day, it just makes absolutely no bloody sense uh, when you think about <laughs> it in any capacity. Yeah, the horizon is proof that the Earth is round. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, if you've ever taken, uh, have you guys ever been on like a really long sea voyage? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. So you've, you've yes, probably I've, been, done, uh, I've done transatlantic. Yeah, I, I've done transatlantic. So I sailed across to Cape Canaveral, and Cape Canaveral, for those who don't know, that's where they launched the rockets into space. And there is a giant bloody scaffold. I mean, it's absolutely massive. Yeah. And I was at the front of the ship and I watched that scaffold slowly rise up above the horizon. It didn't just appear like a mirage. And that could only happen if the Earth was curved. Yeah. There is no other explanation. So we can't really talk about historical science without talking about historical religion. <laughs> okay. And yeah, there we go. Basically, the church is often nearly always portrayed as the biggest barrier to scientific discovery, particularly throughout the Middle Ages period, and particularly in Europe. I, I am I'm talking about the church here rather than religion as a whole. Mm -hmm. Is this reputation fair? So, no, it's not. Uh, but we have to recognise, yes, the church did ban several things that would have helped science speed along. Um, so, for example, aut autopsies would be a great example. Hmm. Although we know that people went to autopsies because if you've ever been to the Sistine Chapel, you'll notice that God looks suspiciously like a brain 
with his cloak and things like that. Mm-hmm. So clearly Michelangelo was not following those rules. So that does happen, yes. And we know that one of Columbus's crew, when he came back from the Caribbean where he landed, he discovered the natives were rolling up and smoking this leaf. And he thought, oh, that looks like fun. I'll, I'll take it back home. This is a guy called Rodrigo de Jerez. And de Jerez brought back um, tobacco leaf so he could smoke it. And, you know, he, was, he, he lit it and he was blowing smoke out of his mouth. He thought it was hilarious. And he was terrifying his neighbors because they had never seen a human being breathe out smoke before. And so the Spanish Inquisition came along and locked him up. And by the time he was released from jail, everybody was smoking because it was the new trend and tobacco was understood and people knew what this was. So the first stop smoking campaign was actually run by the Spanish Inquisition, (laughs) which is this kind of nice idea. But the idea that the church sort of didn't like science we know that um, in China, uh, so China is a really complicated case when it comes to flat Earth because it's arguable when they decided that the Earth was not flat; it was it was round. It's kind of more complicated than that. It's a bit it's political with China, and you'll find that anything that's going on in the court of, if you think Byzantine politics is crazy, you know the court of the Chinese emperor is absolutely rife with this all this kind of stuff. They're just trying to get each other, but the. Uh, astronomers at the Chinese court in the later part of the Middle Ages and towards the modern era were the Jesuits. So the Jesuits okay. were doing the astronomy. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. So the idea that, that science isn't done is absolutely garbage. I mean, the Vatican had an observatory um, and it's still got terrific observatories to this day. Um, universities originate from monasteries. Um, the first universities were established by Pope Gregory the uh, Seventh, I think it is. Um, just before the Crusades. The reason that this the church, church bad, science good kind of thing emerges is Galileo. And as everyone knows, yeah. Galileo is accused of heresy. So this is 1632. And yes, that did happen because he was very much an advocate of this mm-hmm. Copernican idea, a guy called Nicholas Copernicus, great Polish guy. He came up with the idea that the earth was orbiting the sun. And Galileo was a fan of that. And he put that in his book. But here's the thing. Do you know who the patron of the book was? It was the Pope. And the Pope was absolutely fine with this as long as Galileo said it was a hypothesis. Uh, And the problem was Galileo wouldn't say that. So this is where we get the heresy trial from. Yeah. And bear in mind that there is definitely a sort of a push to kind of antagonize the church a little bit. Because you've got the Catholic-Protestant split happening here. And of course, it makes great sense for the Protestants to want to paint the Catholic Church as a bunch of bastards. Um, yeah. And so here we are. When you look at the wider issue of, of Christian influence uh, on science, which kind of stems from this question, I guess, we have uh, a great example of Paracelsus. So Paracelsus is one of the foremost scientists of the Middle Ages. Uh, I wish people would call him by his real name which was Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. That is an awesome name. <laughs> that, that, that should be entered in the records and used as often as possible. Yeah, but people insist on Paracelsus. And he was a Swiss doctor. Um, his big thing was the dose makes the poison, if you've ever heard of that. No, explain. Uh, so it's the idea that uh, a little bit of, of, of so, you know, it's not a little bit of something that kills you. It's, it's, it's enough of something that kills you. You know, if you have enough water, that is a poison for your body. Um, you know, gotcha. rather than a little bit, but you know, a tiny bit of arsenic will kill you pretty much straight away. 
So it's, it's the, the amount of a substance. And he believed that scientific discoveries were messages from God. And of course, that translates into some very interesting things, because if he has a wacky dream, he thinks that's a message from God and a scientific discovery. And he wrote this book. <laughs> he wrote a book on mermaids um, claiming that mermaids didn't have okay. souls and they wanted to marry Christian men so that they could share the soul and get into heaven. And this became science as well. So he's a very interesting character, but as I say, an incredibly influential and very good scientist in many respects, but with some slightly wacky beliefs. Uh, yeah, mermaid husbandry being right up there at the top. A phrase I never thought I'd use on a podcast. He cre- believed he could create a magical servant by doing various... Um unorthodox things that we won't go into detail here but yes. uh, contact us later you that is that, that is the guy he he thought that you could make um little little servants out of clay and and other things which other we won't things. go into here <laughs> <laughs> that might be one for the patreon subscribers yeah. i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com/people today Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. Yeah. Okay. And now going sort of just going back a bit into the area of sort of interest that myself and Kyle really stem from, which is like 15th century and, and around that. Mm. And I know I'd put this uh, question to you before, but I've often been told that early science um, of that kind of medieval style is is geared around understanding God. Yeah, uh, I mean, there certainly is an aspect of that. And that's predominantly, again, because if you remember where universities come from, they come from monasteries. And there is definitely an aspect of that. Um, I mean, the big problem, uh, which we can go on to later if you want, is really what makes a scientist? Where Where do people start being scientists rather than something else? And that's very muddied. Um, And the question is, who's got the time to do all this random crap? And which is often what experiments are, unfortunately. And the answer is definitely monasteries. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's, it's monks and people like that. They've got the or, or, you know, you're either rich or you're or you've got a patron um, or you're a monk and you've just got a lot of time on your hands to think. Um, And of course, monks can write. I won't go into sort of the details because, again, this is a complete side aside. But you have things like uh, these ecclesiastical courts and you can claim benefit of the clergy and. Often this was done literally by being able to prove that you could write or that you could read the Lord's Prayer. And in fact, very famous people who were definitely not clergy got off murder charges because of this. Ben Jonson, uh, the um, uh, playwright, is a great example of that. So, yes, it stems from from religion. And we do see 
bearing in mind that the scientists of the day were, of course, religious. You know, the, the concept of atheism, while there might be some, was largely non-existent in the medieval period. You believed in God. And if you were in England, somewhere like that, who, because Edward I Longshanks was a massive anti-Semite and he booted out all the Jews, you know, for several hundred years, there were no Jews in England. If you were in England, that would be the Christian God. There was no alternative. So, yes, there is, without question, an attempt to understand the nature of God, but understand that the Middle Ages and people in in the medieval period would associate the nature of God with the nature of the world. And that itself is exactly what science does. It's trying to understand the world around us. So we've been debunking myths, um, but can you give us some examples of historical science that is actually nonsense, that is laughable? (laughs) I mean, I have so many different sort of things that I can go into here. Um, You can spend some time on this question if you like. We're we're a little ahead of schedule, so go for it. So my personal favourite when it comes to things like chemistry is is a phlogiston theory, um, which persisted right until the French Revolution. And phlogiston theory was the idea that uh, that there was a magical substance in everything that was called phlogiston, and that's what caused fires. And so when you burnt something, it it wasn't the element burning off or, you know, it wasn't a chemical reaction. Um, It was phlogiston being released. And so you get this wonderful habit, um, again, right into the sort of the 18th century, of people making these these scientific discoveries and, and calling it things like deflagistated air, you know, this air that has been released by burning. We know it better as oxygen. <laughs> but oxygen itself is a really stupid name, and you find this throughout the periodic table. Um, oxygen, and does anyone know what oxygen means, comes from? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be Greek again, isn't it? Uh, well, it's oxygenesis. Um, you're absolutely right. So it is sharp mother. Uh, is what oxygen sort of stems from. Uh, it was named by... Frank- oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah, it, exactly. It's, it's quite... It's it's a bit kinky, actually. It sounds like a really good name for a dominatrix. Um, the Sharp Mother. <laughs> and so that's where oxygen comes from. It was named by Antoine Lavoisier, who was the great detractor of phlogiston theory. He was like, this is garbage. Let's throw it out. And he thought that oxygen was produced by acids. Oh, sorry, sorry, it produced acids. So when it called the sharp mother, it is the, the mother of acids. Again, completely wrong. So he got it wrong trying to prove that this other guy got it wrong. Is one more wrong than the other? Who knows? But we've ended up with this, this very kinky name on the periodic table. You get people like Hennig Brand who thought he could turn his piss into gold. Um, and he he bankrupted his first wife, almost bankrupted his second wife, trying to turn his own urine into gold he would bottle it in his um his cellars um apparently there was something like 2300 liters of of urine that he had in his his stale in his cellar can can i just butt in there a moment (laughs) how does somebody who has over 2000 liters of their own urine in the cellar get a second wife it's a very very fair (laughs) question um uh, and uh, yeah, somehow he get, he gets this wife, and somehow she's happy to fund his bizarre. Because you know, if if he can somehow make himself pee gold, he's gonna she's gonna recoup the costs. Yeah. She actually had a son, and her, her son was like, "Mum, this guy's a wrong'un," and he probably <laughs> had a point. Um, 
This gra- is an episode of Dragon's Den. I wish we could recreate. The great thing about Hennig Brand, though, is he succeeds, kind of. Um, <laughs> so he's trying to burn down his his PP into gold, and he accidentally discovers it glows in the dark, and he has discovered <laughs> phosphorus. So phosphorus was discovered by a man who was trying to turn his own piss into gold. Oh, that is arguably. I'm, I'm going to put that on the quotes when we come out there you to go. this. Exactly. <laughs> um, there was. I'm just thinking of other great. Um, so on maps, there are these fantastic uh, drawings and illustrations of you know where where here be dragons, all that kind of stuff. And yeah. on several famous maps, particularly around Scotland, you will find maps of featuring trees that have geese growing out of them. And this is because in the Middle Ages, people thought that barnacle geese grew on trees, that they were plants. Um, and the reason for this, okay. you, you look stunned, Paul. <laughs> me and geese do not get on. So finding okay. that they grow on trees is not making me comfortable. I mean, there was, there was there's songs about them, stories about them. You can Anyone can go on, on online and, and discover, have a look at these wonderful... You could eat them on Fridays, couldn't you? Yeah, well, absolutely. So, so there was a whole thing about this this fish on Friday thing, you know, that the monks had. Fish was basically anything that lived by a river. You know, an otter was a fish, as far as they were concerned, because uh, monks would eat anything. But um, the reason that this this myth stemmed is that um, the geese suddenly appeared in spring, and yeah, you know, there were you know geese, hundreds of them, thousands of them, to sort of misquote Zulu. And people assumed that the only way that they could have sprouted is because obviously the trees were in blossom and obviously the geese had descended from the trees. It wasn't. It was just obviously geese nests are very well protected and very well disguised because geese are not stupid. They're just evil. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so all these geese suddenly appear in spring. So that's another one. that I mean, the one that really kind of does it for me in terms of how stupid you can be is there are so many misogynistic um, sort of beliefs, particularly about the women's yeah. bodies. But Edward Jordan, it was 1600-something or other. He writes a book called The Suffocation of the Mother. And his theory is that the womb, like a wild animal, moves around a woman's body. It's not attached to anything. It just floats around. It's attracted by nice smells. And as it bubbles around a woman's okay. body, it makes her hysterical. Um, and so if you've ever seen that Harry Enfield sketch, you know, women know your limits. It's basically yes. sort of this, this kind of almost like a wild haggis or something. This geese is, geese is you know, sorry, uh, this womb is flying around making women crazy. This stems from the Greeks, um, particularly people like Galen. But it, I mean, that particular idea wasn't Galen. And there was this belief that uh, a woman's womb was naturally cold. And it had to be warmed up by nice hot jizz. And so sperm belonged in the womb. And there was also the belief that women could only get pregnant if they had enjoyed sex. And now this is incredibly awkward in law, because if a woman was raped, mm. one, there was no evidence if there was uh, no baby, because it was the Middle Ages and they just didn't have things yeah. like rape kits. But if there was a baby, she clearly enjoyed it, and therefore it wasn't rape. It was her fault. Yeah. So here we have that sort of combination. As I mentioned, we can't take science into isolation. It ties into politics. It ties into gender politics. It ties into these huge misogynistic problems that are created. And you've got all of this going on. So you never think that science history isn't linked to social history. It absolutely is. 
you mentioned uh, germ theory. Oh, yeah. God. And I think um, I, I think I'm going to be fair to some historic scientists, okay. um, particularly the historic science community. But it's one thing that that I've always thought that obviously when when you come up with germ theory, it takes a long time to take hold. Yeah, so this is this is Louis Pasteur, and he comes up yeah. with it in basically the start of the 19th century. It's not until the middle of the 19th century that everyone's going, yeah, he's got a point. Yeah, I mean, I just think, to be fair to that scientific community, that if you turn up, you know, at the local medical centre and say, oh, basically all your illnesses are caused by these magic creatures that are invisible to the naked eye, they won't even let you home for your pyjamas. You'll be straight down <laughs> Bethlehem the hospital as soon as look at you. Yeah, I mean, I I think that germ theory is more defendable because you have so you, there's there's a very famous book in the 17th century by Robert Hooke called Micrographia, uh, which is looking at things under a microscope, and as microscopes become more available, uh, we see more rich bods, you know, looking and doing science and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but Robert Hooke was looking at cells. You know, he invented the, the, the term cell comes from Robert Hooke. So the idea that sort of this would be completely out there, I think, is a little bit harsh. And I, I suppose when you look at it, it does make sense. But again, it's one of those sort of myths. There's this great myth about Jon Snow taking off the handle of the Broad Street pump and and stopping the spread of cholera and things like that. Yeah, Jon Snow certainly wasn't the first person that came up with the idea that you know, cholera was a waterborne disease. And there are so many examples of, of people trying to sort of look around that and think and, and solve problems. Um, so it's always it's never good to look at things in isolation. Always look at it in the in the wider picture. Even things like um, antibiotics in the modern era. There's a great uh, story after the Second World War because antibiotics were kind of a an Allied secret weapon almost. Uh, very early mm-hmm. antibiotics, and when they're introduced in Italy uh, in the 1940s, there on the island of Sardinia there is an outbreak uh, of uh, a very nasty disease, typhoid. Uh, and that's spreading throughout the population. And someone notices that people who are swimming in the harbour, which is where the raw sewage outlet is, they're not getting sick. And there's a guy called Giuseppe Brotsu. And Brotsu uh, basically goes into the sewage drain and he takes samples of the mould. And he takes that, he sends it over to a guy called Edward Abraham in, in England. And Abraham from that is able to create the, uh, the first um, kephosporins, which can tackle gram-negative bacteria. Um, so, you know, invents a whole new stream of antibiotics. And so there are great examples of sort of people making breakthroughs and linking things together and, and sort of furthering science that way. And we've gone, but, you know, we've gone way away from the Middle Ages here. Um, but the point is never to look yeah. at things in isolation, always sort of think about the bigger picture and what's going on um, around you. So if you wanted to learn science in the various periods of history. Mm-hmm. You, we've mentioned monasteries as being like source of universities and, yeah. and things like that. But if you're wanting to learn this stuff, where do you go? I mean, it's a, it's a really big question because it kind of depends on who you are and when you are in history. So mm-hmm. if you can, if you are a learned man and it is men, you're going to be going to university. Um, so University of Oxford is the oldest in UK. Uh, and then we've got Cambridge, which is, Actually, people fleeing Oxford for their lives, so they set up Peterhouse College in Cambridge. We've got universities in Pisa, uh, which is where Galileo is, and doing mathematics, things like that, at Wittenberg. We've got Basel. What you've got to remember is that for most of history, right up until the Victorian era, really, there is no person who is a scientist. You are a scientist Mm. plus something else. So you're a scientist and you're a doctor. 
you're a scientist and you're a court person. You're a scientist and you're a billionaire. You know, you're Bruce Wayne or whatever. Isaac Newton, he had a career as an NP. Um, he was also warden of the Royal Mint and a serial killer. Um, so, I'm sorry, come again. <laughs> yeah, Isaac Newton, uh, while he was warden of the Royal Mint, um, this is this is I can't stand Isaac Newton. This is a completely different rage. Um, <laughs> I'm getting that vibe. <laughs> yeah, while Isaac Newton was the warden of the Royal Mint, he got this idea of he was going to take down people who made fake coins because how dare they? He was the guy that was looking after coins, and so he would go in disguise in bars and find people that were faking coins, and he would chop them um, to the authorities and have them hung, drawn, and quartered. So, <laughs> so he, yeah, he directly led to the deaths of several people who were just passing fake coins. That was their crime. Coins, yeah. Anyway, I mean, Isaac Newton... <laughs> so that clears that up. There we go. Yeah, very, very odd man. But yeah, he, he essentially had multiple careers. He wasn't you know, just a scientist. Also, he would go after his rivals. I mean, he he was a really nasty guy. I mean, Hook is a great example of that. He would he would go after Robert Hook even after Robert Hook died. Uh, he wasn't a fan. But this is really when we start getting scientific journals. Um, you know, the 17th century, we're starting to get things like the Royal Society, and you get philosophical transactions of the Royal Society and Micrographia. I mentioned Principia, which is Newton's book, and that's when you start getting people who can take an interest in science and, and start looking at things. And that's when you get this huge boost of, of people trying to come up with scientific ideas and sort of suddenly science is for everyone. Prior to that, you'd be studying. And it's a wonderful period. I mean, you actually, one of the most popular science books of the day is actually by um, uh, Madame Marseille. Um, so it's actually written by a woman. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea that, you know, women are not connected into science is, you know, again, not true. Um, if you look at the earliest origins of of scientific sort of writing, and that's tied into alchemy, you have Cleopatra the alchemist. Uh, she was from what is now Turkey, and you have uh, Mary the Jewess. She was from Egypt, and they were writing books that we you know we have record of of them writing, and uh, and sort of very much influencing what happens next. People they're talking about sort of scientific recipes. I've mentioned Galileo. Um, and he's learning from books as well. Um, he read from a book from a guy called Santorio Santorio. I don't know why everyone in the, in Italy had sort of, you know, Galileo, Galilei, Santorio, Santorio. You know, everyone's got these double names, but <laughs> there we go. But it's again, it's not until the Victorian era where we actually sort of have this giant boost in engineering. And again, it's applied science. It's not the fundamental, yeah. it's not the basic building blocks of the universe that gets people jobs it's being able to take those building blocks and actually apply them to something, you know, and we have this boost in engineering and that's when we start getting science as a profession. And it's not until the 1930s uh, and a guy called Ernest Lawrence over in America that we actually get the idea of big science, which is you're not doing everything yourself as an individual. You are part of a team and you run this machine. You are an expert in this machine and, and we all specialize, which is what we do today. So that is less than 100 years old, that idea. So we've covered quite a lot of different topics already, but what are some other historical science myths that really need to be done away with, need to be shown the door? Okay, the one I want to give the boot is alchemy. Yes. People do not understand what alchemy is. Um, They think it's some kind of, it's this 
constant pursuit of turning lead into gold and that that's not possible. In fact, it is possible. We did it in the 1980s. You can do it. Uh, a guy called Glenn Seaborg uh, at uh, University of California, Berkeley, didn't make any money because it's incredibly expensive to do. But it is possible. But alchemy, people are very much misunderstand it as this kind of pseudoscience and that it's about astronomy and there's John D, probably people might have heard of that name, and, and sort of long flowing beards and astrology charts, all that kind of nonsense. It often isn't. Alchemy was often very much early chemistry. And yes, they did write in their books, you know, take the child of the fiery dragon and put it in the cauldron and things like that. That's, My school had textbooks like that, really, I think. That's code. That's the yep. thing. People are actually talking about take iron. That's what they mean. Take iron and put it in the yeah. pot. And so it's scientists who are actually probably doing very, very good science sharing their recipes. And, of course, they don't want everyone to know. And, you know, going back to Hennig Brand and his, you know, seller of we, um, he actually took he took several years before he told anybody about this weird glowy <laughs> phenomenon he managed to make from his pee-pee. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, because it was worth money. Because scientific discovery leads to to finance and leads to fame and leads to glory if you can do it right. And obviously, you don't want everyone stealing your idea. So, yeah, yeah alchemy, not what people think. Well, thanks very much for that, Kit. Uh, I'm hoping, really, that's a good few historical he- hypotheses that are well and truly blown out of the water. We, we can but hope. But thank you, because that was really, really kind of refreshingly different angle to a lot of the rages that we've had because it was truly multi-period it, it absolutely crossed time so thank you for bringing that to us no worries no thank you very much for letting me vent you're welcome <laughs> you're welcome um so if if you'd like to know more about kit's work then you can start by reading the best-selling racing green which can be purchased from the history rage bookshop and there'll be a link in the show notes and you can follow him on twitter at chemistry kit kit thank you very much for bringing thank you so much has been great truly thank scientific rage Thanks, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe to us on Patreon as your £5 per month will get you early episodes and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, welcome back. Thanks a lot for listening and stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.